Tonight on the Late Night Fright, it's a terrifying story about a mother's undying love for her special son. Forrest Gump? That movie gives me the heebie-jeebies, but no, it's the 1980 slasher classic Friday the 13th. Take it away, Boris. Welcome, misfits, miscreants, spooks, specters, astral beings from Dimension X, alien envoys from galaxies near and far, and boogers from around the world. You are listening to the Late Night Fright here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. I am Dan, and with me as always is my awesome co-host, that rampaging hockey goalie you all know and love, Faith. Say hi, Faith. Hi, Faith. How are you doing, Faith? I am pretty good. How are you? I'm great. You are back from vacation, aren't you? I am. That's why I said I'm pretty good. I could still, you know, use a few more days there. <laughs> Where did you go? The Smoky Mountains. And I know you had a good time, but I did. please tell our listeners, you saw some spooky stuff while you were there, didn't you? I don't remember. Did I? <laughs> you saw an abandoned ghost town or, oh, or, or something yes. like Elkmont. that? Elkmont. Elkmont. And those are available on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. I have pictures. more to post. <laughs> Very good. So if you're interested in spooky locations, check out I'm a Normal Alien. That is Faith's Instagram handle. She has some great pictures from her trip, and we're glad to have you back. It feels like forever since we've done the show, it doesn't does. it? It does. Where's really my voice does. going, by the way? <clears throat> I don't know. I think I laughed too much earlier. <clears throat> well, you did go to the Ryan Reynolds fan club. I did. Salsa and sarcasm get together, didn't you? I did, and it, I laughed so hard. We have more on that in our news that's coming up later. But we want to thank you all for tuning in. We know you have a lot of options when it comes to how you spend your time. And Faith, aren't we happy that they've all chosen to spend yes. a little time here on our little show? And we have a good one tonight. This one, I think, has it all, doesn't it, Faith? Mm-hmm. Let's see what we've got. We've got murder. We've got naked girls, pastoral outdoor settings, more murder, strip monopoly, a full moon, a rainstorm, naked girls, murder. Did I say those twice? I think so. We got Kevin Bacon. We're throwing Kevin Bacon in for good measure. Faith, tell them what we are talking about tonight. We are talking about 1980s classic Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th is indeed a classic in the slasher canon, and this is the movie that gave birth to the series that gave us Jason Voorhees, one of the most iconic killers in all of filmdom, and irony of ironies, he's not even in this movie that we're <laughs> going to be talking about, but I think we do have a pretty good killer that we're going to get to. As the night goes mm-hmm. on, don't you? I think so. And, you know, when it comes to Jason Voorhees, I think we're all better people just having him in the world, don't you? I would agree. Yes. So, <laughs> Friday the 13th is a multimedia franchise to date Faith. Do you know how many films there have been in this series? Twelve. Twelve films. There's been video games, comic books, novels, a spinoff television series, 
that really had nothing to do with the films, but hey, they called it Friday the 13th and it was on for a few years. And merchandise galore, there is something out there that has Friday the 13th logo on it somewhere. You can get t-shirts, coffee cups, calendars, all that good stuff. Jason has been killed, brought back from the dead, shot into space, and has even met Freddy Krueger. But it all started here with this little movie, didn't it? It sure did. Yes. What do you think of this little movie? I enjoy this little movie quite a bit. What about you? I like this movie a lot, and it was great re-watching this. I've seen this quite a few times, but it had been a little while since I had watched this movie, and it was a nice revisit. And, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. We have so some fun new segments, and we're going to see if this movie... Friday the 13th, Faith, if it appeases the lords of horror, because as we all know, the lords of horror demand sacrifice. They demand it. Yep. We're going to see if this movie will quench their thirst for blood. What do you say? I have a suspicion that it will. I think it might. But you know, we have a little bit of business to get to first, don't we? We do. Faith, tell them what time it is. The news. The news. The Cozy Corner Society of Light Switch Enthusiasts have come under fire for their most recent singles meet and greet held at the Cozy Corner Town Square. The event was called Turn Me On and drew criticism from the Cozy Corner Society for a better society. CCSBS spokeswoman Marta Hinglehorn says that kind of language has no place in Cozy Corner and added that if weirdo light switch enthusiasts want to get together and make babies, they should do it the way we in the CCSBS do it, as quietly as possible in the dark. Apparently Turn Me On turned her off. Cozy Corner resident Chick Jinglehart was recently struck by lightning for a record 12th time. Doctors are at a loss for why Jinglehart keeps getting struck by lightning, but he has a theory on it. I just have an electric personality, he says. I'm going to try and get through this next one. A terrible mix-up over the weekend led to new friendships. The Cozy Corner fans of Ryan Reynolds were hosting their annual Sarcasm and Salsa get-together at the Cozy Corner Public Library when Cozy Corner resident and world's number one Burt Reynolds fan Jimmy Bolero wandered in wearing an authentic recreation of Burt's iconic Smokey and the Bandit costume, thinking it was a Burt Reynolds tribute party. After the mishap was cleared up, the Ryan Reynolds fans welcomed Bolero into their fold and even introduced him to the films Deadpool 1 and 2. The party ended early when Bolero insisted on screening the classic Burt Reynolds film Deliverance. No word on whether or not he will be invited back to next month's get-together. And finally, everyone's favorite thief in Cozy Corner, Klepto Kip, recently tied the knot. Apparently he stole his bride's heart. And that's the news. Faith, I want to go to the sarcasm and salsa get-together. It was so much fun. You went? I did go. I now have heartburn. Did you stick around for the showing of Deliverance? I did. I unfortunately could not make it. I was at the meeting of the light switch enthusiasts. Oh, wow. 
How'd that go? Oh, it turned me on. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. This is as good as it gets for the evening, people. Thank you Pretty again much. for tuning in and hanging out with us. All of you misfits, miscreants, and boogers out there, pour yourself a cup of coffee. Put your feet up and get comfortable because when we get back, we're going to take a little trip, aren't we? We Where sure are. are we going, Faith? We are going to Crystal Lake. You got it. We will see you on the other side. I am Dan. And I am Faith. And we want to let you know that we are on the World Wide Web. That's the interwebs, isn't it, Faith? That's what I like to call it, the interweb. www.latenightfright.com. And we are also on the gram. We are. You can check us out at the Late Night Fright Podcast. Or you can also follow my personal page, I'm a Normal Alien. You're not exactly normal, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Check out the website. You can subscribe to our mailing list. And if you like the show, please give us a review and subscribe and all that good stuff. You know us. We're available wherever podcasts can be found. You got that right. We'll see you on the other side. Machete by Voorhees. Available now at fine fragrance stores in Cozy Corner and around the world. Machete. Machete by Voorhees. A unique blend of rotten earth, murky water, and dead teenagers. Machete. You smell killer. You have no idea how right you are. Machete by Voorhees, available now. Welcome back to the Late Night Fright, all you misfits and miscreants and boogers from around the world. We are going to be talking about 1980s classic slasher film, Friday the 13th Faith. Can I tell a story first? Please do. So I've mentioned him on the show several times, my good dear friend, Glenwood Campbell, that passed away earlier this year, and he passed away right before the the show aired, so he didn't really get to hear it. And let me clear my throat. There it is. Live radio, people. We could edit that out, but we're not going to. Um, So we were all having coffee uh, yesterday, my mother and I and some friends of Glenn, and a story came up that I had never heard, and I want to share it. And you can tell everyone out there, you have not heard this story, have you? I have not. I'm not looking forward to (laughs) I did not share this story. So a few years ago, my mother and Glenn were going somewhere, and they were in his truck, and he was driving. And he was so proud because his daughter-in-law, Becky, had decided that she was going to go back to school. And she had decided that she wanted to go and become a paralegal. And they're driving down the road, and Glenn looks over at my mother and says, I'm so proud of Becky. Becky has decided to go back to school, and she's going to become a paraplegic. (laughs) Are you serious? I'm serious, yes. And my mother looked at him and she said, what did you say? He said, Becky's going back to school to become a paraplegic. And my mother's response was, it's paralegal, you dumbass. 
So a few days later, this was on a Saturday. So the next Monday, they were at the little convenience store by our house, which is called the Quick Shop. Faith, you're familiar with the Quick Mm -hmm. Shop. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge, a.k.a. Cozy Corner area, stop in at the Quick Shop for some of the best boudin you've ever had in your life and hoghead cheese. Glenn was a fixture at this place. Glenn would go there when it opened. He would be there at 4.30 in the morning when this place <laughs> opened. I'm, I'm not kidding. He would put on the coffee, and uh, he was he was fi- a fixture there. He was really family and like a, another employee. He'd put on the coffee. and uh, But my mother was in there. She stopped in on her way, way to work. And uh, let me tell you how close he was with, with these guys Uh they were pallbearers at his funeral. This is how close he was wow. with these people. So these were friends and family, you know. And uh, they were in there, and they were cutting up and laughing. And Glenn looked over at my mother and cut his eyes. And <laughs> she said, hey, did y'all hear about Becky going back to school? She's going to become a paraplegic. <laughs> and he had a big laugh. He had a, he had a big laugh. He was a big guy, and he had a really huge laugh. And he enjoyed nothing more than a good laugh on himself. <laughs> so, uh, Glenn, we miss you, and I'm so glad that I finally heard this story because it, I laughed so hard yesterday that the back of my neck was hurting. <laughs> She's going back to school to become a paraplegic. <laughs> there you go. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. That is a good one. That's it. I, I thought people around the world needed to hear that story. He was. I he, needed to hear that story. He was he was a great guy, and I'm going to be telling some more Glenwood Campbell stories as this show, not this show, but as the the series that we're doing here continues. So let's get into it. 1980s, Friday the 13th. It came out May 9th, 1980. It is part of the golden age of the slasher picture that began with John Carpenter's 78 Halloween, and that ends with Wes Craven's 1984 Nightmare on Elm Street. Faith, you want to go ahead and tell them? That we've done both of these on our show, and you can find them wherever podcasts can be found. Faith, that was a shameless plug for our I show. Know. Are you ashamed of yourself? Not one bit. I wouldn't be either. This film began life under the working title A Long Night at Camp Blood and was the brainchild of Sean S. Cunningham, who had produced Wes Craven's 1972 film The Last House on the Left. Cunningham was inspired by the success of Carpenter's Halloween and wanted his new film to be a roller coaster ride that made you jump out of your seat. Cunningham proposed the title Friday the 13th and hired Victor Miller to set about rewriting and refining the idea. Miller liked the idea of having the killer be someone's mother. He says he took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think it's great fun. I think it's great fun, too. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree. Victor Miller would go on to write for several daytime soap operas, and has received many daytime Emmy nominations for his work. And a little trivia bit, he is from right down the road from us. He was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. So Very cool. Jason's daddy is from New Orleans, Louisiana. Of course Jason's he daddy. is. Of course he is, <laughs> of isn't course. he? Uh, Friday the 13th was produced on a budget of $550,000. It grossed $40 million upon its release, yeah. and that comes to about $130 million. When you adjust for inflation, that's a pretty nice size hit and a great return on the investment. Dave Ramsey, the investment guy, would would, mm-hmm. would give a thumbs up to yeah. that one. Uh, it was the 18th highest grossing film of 1980, despite the fact that critics were savage towards it. Faith, what did Michael Blowen of the Boston Globe say about this film? 
He said, unless your idea of a good time is to watch a woman have her head split by an axe or a man stuck to a door with arrows, you should stay away from Friday the 13th. It's bad luck. Well, he doesn't sound like he's any fun. Not at all. What did Gene Siskel say about Sean S. Cunningham, the architect of all of this fun? He said, Sean S. Cunningham was one of the most despicable, despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. That's high praise, considering how many despicable creatures infest the movie business. Right? <laughs> so, well, before we begin our discussion proper on the movie, here is Deputy FBI Director Gordon Cole with a short synopsis of the film right here from the home office in Cozy Corner. Gordon, what have you got for us? Hello, Dan and Faith. Gordon Cole here. I am hard of hearing, so forgive me if I speak loudly. It is currently 85 degrees here at the home office in Cozy Corner. It is dark outside, so I cannot tell if there are any clouds in the sky. I have a fresh cup of coffee and a damn fine piece of cherry pie from the Cozy Cafe here in Cozy Corner. I would really like some cake balls, but that is neither here nor there. On with the synopsis. Friday the 13th is a movie about a group of camp counselors at Camp Crystal Lake getting off by an unseen killer. That's all I've got for the plot. There's a nice twist when it was revealed that the killer is Pamela Voorhees, the mother of a child who drowned at the camp years before and blames the counselors for not watching him. Her reign of terror is pretty brutal. If she were doing this in the real world, I'll tell you what we would do. We would pursue, capture, and incarcerate. Unfortunately, she is fictional and was decapitated, so I will not have the opportunity. Nevertheless, this movie is epic. So epic, in fact, I'm going to get a pen and paper and write an epic poem about it. I'll see you at the close of the show. Gordon Cole out. Thank you for that, Deputy Director Gordon Cole, and I'm glad I took my headphones off when he was giving us that synopsis and weather report that we did not ask for. And (laughs) I'm really looking forward to his epic poem. What about you, Faith? I am looking forward to it, too. I'm also looking forward to hear what you think of Friday the 13th. I really like this movie. It actually might be... One of my favorite slasher movies, I think. The more that I I watch it, I really like it. My text to you while I was watching this was, and I'm quoting here because I saved it. (laughs) I'm currently enjoying the putrid pleasantness that is Friday the 13th. (laughs) That was my text to you. Yes. (laughs) And I do indeed think this movie is putrid, (laughs) exploitive, Mm -hmm. a Halloween ripoff. Yes. And maybe not a very good movie. (laughs) But I love every minute of it. Right? (laughs) Absolutely do I love every minute of this. It's a fun movie. You hit the nail on the head. There's a real sense of fun here. And when I was watching it, I was trying to figure out if it was unintentional from the acting or just how ridiculous (laughs) this really is. But I, I really did have a fun time watching this. And... There's a, there's a lot of things that I really like in the movie. So let's let's get into it. How did you feel about the way the story is told, specifically the point of view camera work that is pretty important to the ending? Because we never get to see the killer's face. So the big reveal is kind of, and I'm putting this in air quotes, shocking mm-hmm. because of the way that they set up the story. So how did you think about the storytelling device that Sean Cunningham uses here? It's a despicable creature that he is i like the way the story's told and i like the pov cameras that was actually the first thing before i even read your notes that i had noticed and then i like i think i think it's necessary because i think not only 
for that shock element, but it just adds to the creep. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, the creep factor. There you go. Creep, the creep factor. Fa- too. It, yeah. You hit all of the nails on the head. And the only thing I'm going to add to what you just said is the mystery doesn't work without right. the point of view. So it's not only is it effective as a shock right. thing, you know, uh, with the murders, it's storytelling. It's mm-hmm. actually part of how they tell the story. And uh, so I have a note here. When I was watching this for the show and they started off with the point of view work, my first thought was was Halloween from right. 1978. I agree. Especially the, that beginning uh, with Michael Myers when he goes in and he kills the sister. Mm-hmm. And the thought in the back of my head was rip off. Like, I'm just going... <laughs> I was I was like, oh, you're you're uh, you're a horrible, despicable creature, Sean S. Cunningham. <laughs> you're you're an awful person. And I hope you get gout. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Gout. I'm that's, that's all I could think of. You know, it's like the most random thing for somebody to have. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> like I I hope you have a pimple that doesn't want to pop. In a very uncomfortable place, Sean Cunningham. Like I hope you have like severe diarrhea in public. Yeah, Sean Cunningham. <laughs> Because you dared to rip off John Carpenter's Halloween, and you were upfront about it, <laughs> and you're a despicable, vile creature, Sean Cunningham, and Gene Siskel said so. <laughs> and, and you work in an industry with pedophiles, known pedophiles, but you're a despicable creature, Sean Cunningham, <laughs> for ripping off John Carpenter. <laughs> but um, I don't know where I was going with this, but... um. When I was doing the rewatch for the show and I got over that, <laughs> wanting him to get pimples and diarrhea, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm losing my train of thought, but um, it's moving on. I've seen this a few times. So I want to make that clear. So this wasn't a, a surprise with the big reveal, sure. but I did get a newfound respect for the movie because you can't pull off the ending without the point of view camera work. So is it a ripoff faith? Yep. Yes. Do they use it effectively? Yes. And they use it in service of the story, so they get major thumbs up for that. And for the record, I just want to say that I don't want Sean Cunningham to get pimple laced diarrhea. That's <laughs> that's just not nice. So here is my next question to you. The point of view camera work contributes to the mystery element of the film. And on the rewatch, I was pleasantly surprised at how well the mystery works in the movie. You really don't know who it is until the end, but along the way, they plant the idea that it could be crazy old Ralph or possibly the jean short wearing Steve Christie (laughs) or maybe one of the counselors there at the camp. What did you think of the mystery side of this? Because I really enjoy that aspect of the film. And this is something I enjoyed more on this rewatch than Mm -hmm. I maybe took note of in previous watches. Yeah, I, I think so, too, for me. And I think it plays a big part. And why I like this movie so much. I think it adds, you know, like I said, that little element of surprise and wonderment of it all. It makes it fun. Yeah. And that's something that uh, Halloween doesn't do. So it is different from Halloween in that respect. And that was one of the things, rewatching it for the show especially, and having a lot of these under our belt now, going... Yeah, it's a rip. Yeah, of course, this is a ripoff. And he's upfront about the fact that it's a ripoff. And I respect him for that. But, you know, he was employing a little bit of artistry here. This wasn't just, hey, let's go kill some people. No, this is this is not high art. This is a very fun time at the movies. And I enjoy that the way the story plays out. And I and I really did get a newfound respect for it with noticing how much they were taking the time to establish. Mm -hmm. You don't know who this is. Yeah, and they—I think 
I think it's really well done. I think so too. Like I said, I think that makes it kind of more fun and more interesting. Little little bit on the Scooby Doo side, yeah. you know, just a little bit. So, um, so when we did our episode on Wes Craven's 1984 A Nightmare on Elm Street, and I'm just going to say this again. Can I say it again? Say it. That episode is available wherever podcasts are found. Mm-hmm. Shameless. Uh, we talked about the slasher genre of horror films and touched on the formula that these movies usually follow. So here it goes. A past wrongful action causes severe trauma that is reinforced by commemoration or anniversary that reactivates or re-inspires the killer. We have a villain here that hits all of the high notes. There's a past wrongful deed, there's an anniversary, and there's added inspiration in the reopening of the camp where the past wrongful action took place. Faith, introduce our killer in this feature, please. Our killer is Betsy Palmer as Pamela Voorhees. What do you think of Pamela Voorhees and of Betsy Palmer's portrayal of her? I love, I love, uh... Pamela Voorhees. I don't know. The more I watched it last night, I was like, wow, she's actually, she's pretty cool. <laughs> she's like, up there, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, she's not, you know, cool because she's going around killing people, but I don't know. She's just, I guess I like the way the story's told through her first. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very different to have her, you know, in a slasher uh, film, you know. You have a female slasher, which is very interesting yeah. to me. They hold off on introducing her until mm-hmm. the last 30 minutes of the movie. So you really don't know who it is. Right. Like, even if you have a sneaking suspicion that it's one of these other characters that we mentioned earlier. But she, they hold her off. And from the moment she gets out of her Jeep wearing that sweater <laughs> with those eyes and that toothy grin that she's got, you know, there's something very off putting about her. Mm hmm. And I think she is, she might be a little overlooked sometimes in the canon of, of killers. I think so too. Like I said, the more I watched this, I was like, wow, she's, she's really great. It would, you know, I mean. She's wonderful. Yeah. I like the moment she walked into the kitchen and she mm-hmm. saw the dead body and she said, what monster could have done this? Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, you're just calling herself a monster pretty much. Like, right. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I like that. So I have I have a note here. She mm-hmm. famously thought of this movie as a piece of shit, and that's a quote. Wow. <laughs> she thought of it as a piece of shit and took the part because she needed to buy a new car. But uh, I think she's absolutely fantastic here. And from the moment you first see her when she gets out of the Jeep, she's creep central. <laughs> and I really think there's something iconic about her with the haircut and the sweater and that big toothy look she has. And your favorite thing about these characters, her eyes are just very off. Yeah. There's something very not right about her eyes. And I've seen her in other things when she was younger. She was doing that for this movie. This That was not a natural, you know, <laughs> those wild, crazy eyes. That was not a natural thing. So uh, even though she thought the movie was trash, she showed up and she played. I found this while doing research for the show, and I think it gives an insight into what a professional Miss Palmer was because she had a very long and distinguished career. She said, and here's where the quote begins, being an actress who uses the Stanislavski method, I always try to find details about my character. With Pamela, I began with a class ring that I remember reading in the script that she'd worn. Starting with that, I traced Pamela back to my own high school days in the early 40s. So it's 1944, a very conservative time, and Pamela has a steady boyfriend. They have sex, which is very bad, of course, and Pamela soon gets pregnant with Jason. The father takes off, and when Pamela tells her parents 
they disown her because having babies out of wedlock isn't something that good girls do. I think she took Jason and raised him the best she could, but he turned out to be a very strange boy. She took lots of odd jobs, and one of those jobs was as a cook at a summer camp. Then Jason drowns and her whole world collapses. What were the counselors doing instead of watching Jason? They were having sex, which is the way that she got into trouble. From that point on, Pamela became very psychotic and puritanical in her attitudes as she was determined to kill all of the immoral camp counselors. What do you think of that? Because I enjoy the insight there that Mm -hmm. she has that more than likely wasn't in the script that she intuited from that. Right. I think that's very interesting, very clever of her. Extremely clever. And, you know, we've been doing the cage match on Mondays, and Mm -hmm. we talk about Nicolas Cage and how brilliant Nicolas Cage is. And uh, if you have not followed those shows, they are, of course, available wherever (laughs) podcasts are found. Another very shameless plug. But uh, as we get toward the end, I would like to do an episode on whether or not Nicolas Cage is a genius, because I I do believe that he's a genius, and I want to offer opinions towards that. But you see that with really good actors and she was a really good actor she she was trained and you know i'm not saying that betsy palmer was a genius but i think there's a genius working there with the way that she was approaching this character Mm -hmm. and she's so good and she's not in the movie very much and she leaves the biggest impression out of anyone in the movie and i think that's That's, very impressive yeah i mean that says a lot you have to do you know a lot and do it good to be that rememberable and right. <laughs> not be in it very much. Right. And the character the character itself, I, I made this note, there's a Norman Bates quality to her that I had not really noticed before. That's, I, that's a that, good point. That maybe passed me over a yeah. little bit. And the way that it was coming out to me, especially it's the way that she talks to Jason when she's stalking Alice in that last you know act. Mm-hmm. You know, kill mommy, kill. And we're going to talk about that because that actually has a huge influence on something else in this movie that we're going to get to. But that, to me, that's Booger Hall of Fame right there. That is absolutely terrifying. (laughs) The mental instability coming out. And the way that it switches so quickly, the way that she shows up and you think, here comes help, finally. And no, no. No, pulls out the knife, what, maybe 30 seconds a minute later? (laughs) Maybe, so... So let's talk about her victims, these sacrifices and would-be sacrifices to the lords of horror. You know them. I do. They demand blood, don't they, Faith? They sure Screenwriter do. Victor Miller said, you have to have a group of adolescents or slightly post-adolescents who are in an environment in which they cannot be helped by adults. Sean Cunningham said he was not looking for great actors, but people who were likable and appeared to be responsible. They needed to look good, read the dialogue somewhat well, and work cheap. What do you think of the cast here, these sacrifices to the lords of horror? I think they get the job done. I think they do a pretty good job of, you know, what they're asked to do. And I really don't have any complaints about them. I don't either. It's not high art. Right. They're fine for what this is. And I actually find something very endearing about them. Um, Sean Cunningham said no one complained when they were filming. And it seems to me, at least, that they were having a good time while they were doing this. I could see that. And uh, Janine Taylor, who plays Brenda, said she never thought of it as a horror film and thought of it as a film about teenagers having a fun summer who just happened to start getting killed. (laughs) Um, I I think they're absolutely fine. And if any of them get on your nerves, well, (laughs) guess what? There's a good chance that one of them is going to get offed. Pretty good chance. In a pretty (laughs) grisly manner. So... 
We uh, speaking of the cast, we do have a great final girl here in Alice Hardy, played by Adrian King. What do you think of Alice, and is she final girl Hall of Fame? I love Alice. I always have watching this movie. I think that she, uh, I think she grounds this movie in a way. Would you agree? That's that's a great point. She really does ground this movie. <laughs> she, does. she feels. Uh, let me let me go to my notes here okay. because I think this ties in with what you're talking about with the grounding because mm-hmm. she kind of sort of feels like a real person. Yeah. Or at least they're trying to make her a real person. Um, let's see. Here's my note. She actually seems to have common sense. <laughs> uh, after she hugs Mrs. Voorhees because she's so relieved that someone might be there to help her, she starts to suspect her almost immediately, which, you know, that's one of those things in horror movies. Like, why are you doing You always yell, like, why are you doing that? Don't it? She suspects her almost immediately. She bars the doors, she closes the curtains, and she arms herself, and she goes into survival mode and stays there. That's the thing. She keeps her guard up. And what's interesting is she does this all by herself. No one comes to her aid. Um, Let me see what you think of this. I see her as a midpoint between Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween, and because Lori has an idea something might be off and does sort of try to take proactive measures to save herself. And then I see uh, the other side of that, her being the midpoint between Heather Langenkamp as Nancy on Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, because Nancy really did take matters into her own hands and went balls to the wall and, you know, and went after the monster. I find her kind of sitting right between them. I agree. Because she is caught with her pants down. Mm -hmm. Um, Not literally, which you might do in a movie like this. (laughs) Right. uh, Um, I, I think she's deserving of a spot on the Mount Rushmore final I girls. So I really, really do. Mm-hmm. I was impressed with her. I was impressed with her performance and the character. Yeah. She so. seems like a very smart and capable character for a, a movie like this. Yeah. Something you don't get a lot in right. these movies. That's why I said for a movie like this. <laughs> for a movie like this, yes. It's very rare. So, all right. So there's three filmmaking aspects I want to talk about before we take a break. The first is the setting. How do you like the remote wooden setting of Camp Crystal Lake for a horror movie? I love it. I love, love, love it. It might be one of my favorite aspects of the movie. I think this contributes greatly to the atmosphere of this film. Not only are they out in the middle of nowhere, but there's something sometimes very creepy about nature. You know, as Would as, you like to hear a story? Yes. Actually? Yes. So there is a place in North Carolina I went to last week. Um, called Deep Creek. I don't know if you've heard of it before. Um, I have not. People have actually gone missing there. Um, okay. I walked the actual trail. The lady went missing. And um, this seems like a place Friday the 13th would take place in. You know, very, very wooded, very far out. What was funny is that my father and I actually started doing the theme song <laughs> while that's, we that's were great. there. He started it before I did. And I was like, that's actually, this seems like a place that something like this would happen. It, yeah. Yeah. It, there's something really great about it. Yeah. There's something, you know, nature. You know, it's can, not a house. You know I mean? Yeah. It's in, not, it's in, not the suburbs. Right. It's not a, yeah. There's something really, uh, as I was watching again, this is something I was noticing this watch on this movie because in, in my view of the series, sometimes I think this one gets overlooked sometimes mm-hmm. because Jason is not in it, you know, right. but it really I think works. It works. Yeah. It has it has a neat atmosphere without you know being overdone. I think, and I want to say when I was doing the research on this, this was the first movie like this that was set you know outdoors like this. Right. So it's kind of a trendsetter. And also, Victor Miller uh, kind of came up with the tropes that we all know and love that are lampooned in Scream, another episode available wherever podcasts are found. But with that, they lay out the rules in Scream. Uh, he saw Halloween. 
and was taking notes and he said, okay, so this had, you know, oh, the bad girls get killed. The good girl makes it. And so he kind of in a roundabout way invented these tropes and these tropes are here in this movie. So it's kind of, kind of historical in that right. respect. So, um, I love the setting. So let's see. The second thing I want to mention are the makeup effects by Tom Savini. Tom Savini is a legend in the horror movie industry. He's a makeup artist extraordinaire, having famously worked with George Romero several times. He is a director and actor, also an accomplished gymnast, a tournament fencer, and is adept at motorcycle stunts. He's also responsible for having Jason come up out of the water at the end of the movie. He felt uh, the movie needed a chair jumper, as he calls it and suggested bringing in Jason for that chair jumper. What do you think of the makeup effects here and the decision to bring in Jason at the end of the film? Um, I think they're awesome. I think they're, they seem fresh. They pop on the screen and having him there, I think ties into the whole story of how this franchise will continue. You know, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, my note here is they still look great. The makeup effect 40 years later, mm-hmm. Uh, even when put into the often harsh light that can be high def. <laughs> so uh, I find it really interesting, too, that as much grief as the movie caught from critics about the violence, one of the things that they praised was the makeup effects. So there you go. I can't define irony, but I know it when I see it. And no sequels without the ending of this movie, so we owe him a big debt of gratitude. So the final aspect I want to talk about, uh, even critics who hated this movie say the music by Harry Manfredini was great. He has scored nine of the 12 Friday films. What do you think of the score? Love the score. It's very creepy. <clears throat> I think it, uh, I think it pulls you in. I think it adds a little element to pull you into that, you know, creep factor for you. Absolutely. I think the score is the best aspect of this movie. And I love the way that they use the music because, uh, Harry Manfredini is on record as saying he only used the music when the killer was around. And he was influenced by John Williams' score for Jaws in that respect. Yeah. And the score, uh, it's it's just really great. He was doing some great things. Those sounds, there's there's a there's a very harsh sound there. I, I can't even imitate it because he was taking a quarter and scraping it on a cymbal and they're recording it and putting effects on it. So it was like, well. like this sound. <laughs> and he used that for lights because he didn't have anything to like symbolize lights musically. So he thought that was the spark of a light coming on, which I, great intuition that he was clever. using. Yeah. But we were talking about Betsy Palmer's performance and we were talking about kill mommy kill that she's channeling Jason. And that became the most iconic thing to come out of this film. And one of the most iconic bits of horror movie movie score yeah. ever. The, uh, because that's the voices in her head. He, he said, Oh, she's hearing the voices. So you don't hear the whole thing. You just hear the beginnings of it. And yep. he did that himself. He went in front of a microphone and did the k in the ma and just put the reverb on it. And awesome. that became horror movie yeah. history. Wow. I mean, you know, that's the thing. Um, that's the thing that people identify from the score. And, yeah. and when you watch uh, Freddy versus Jason, when they do the new line logo, you hear the uh, Freddy Krueger, that do, 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 do. And then you hear that. Ka, 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 yep. pop. Yeah. So it, I thought that was a really Very great. Cool. Uh, you talk about people having those genius moments, and I think that was one of those genius moments. And he's a great composer. He's a wonderful, uh, wonderful writer, great player, too. Uh, he's worked in a lot of different uh, idioms. I think he scored something like 100 films or 100 uh, wow. films with television included. Like, he's really worked That's a lot. Very and cool. uh, this is Hall of Fame, though, for me. Yeah. So I think the score might be the best aspect 
yeah. of this entire thing. Now knowing how he did it, I mean, that's even cooler. I mean, right, right, yeah, right. And you know, um, part of the reason that we started this show, as we've said before, is because we like to watch movies together and we like to talk about movies. So why not do a show where we talk about them and maybe hopefully get people interested in different things about movies you know, and things that we like about these movies and give a little insight, you know, into some of the background and there's shows out there that do background and history a lot better than we do. But this is part of the reason why I like doing this show to share things like that, to give you an appreciation for the artistry that goes into something like Friday the 13th is so easily written <laughs> off. You know, it's so know. easy to say, Oh, well it's kids in the woods, you know, getting killed and all this. And you know, a Halloween ripoff, which is easy to say. But when you look at the artistry behind all of this and the artistry of Sean Cunningham doing the point of view stuff and the way that Victor Miller put the script together and the the love that the kids had for doing this movie, you know, the actors, and then that scores the cherry on top. You know, there's a it lot is. of great art and it doesn't always have to be high art. You know, it can be yeah. low art. And that's why I love doing this show. And I hope that you out there listening uh, love this movie. And if you don't love this movie, go watch it again and keep in mind some of the things that we just talked about and see if you have a new respect and appreciation for it. So, yeah, definitely. So, well, Faith, it is time to take a break. But you know what? What? When we get back, we are going to make our sacrifice to the Lords Ooh. of Horror. I'm ready for that. We're going to attempt to see if we can quench their bloodthirst. We're also going to check in with Gordon Cole to see how his epic poem is coming. Oh, I'm excited about that, too. Yes. So go get yourself another cup of coffee. I am Dan. And I am Faith. And we will be right back. See you on the other side. This is former President George W. Bush. When I was in politics, I had to appeal to my base. Now that I'm out of politics, the base appeals to me. I can walk it. I can make it real funky. Or I can play some Texas two-step. Join me every Sunday for Groovin' with George on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. It's gonna be awesome. This is Bobby, host of Afterglow, the show that comes on after the late night fright. If you are getting it on, thinking about getting it on, or perhaps have just gotten it on, then Afterglow is the show for you. Join me as I play the best classic soul and R&B slow jams. My show is responsible for having made more babies than any show in the history of shows. Fact. My show is also responsible for having played the 1972 Tower Power classic Still a Young Man more than any show in the history of shows. Fact. Come get it on with me. Bobby, every Friday night after the late night fright. Afterglow. Love that, Bobby. Yeah, I know. WKMF cannot verify the validity of any claims made by Bobby. 
but we do urge you to listen to his show. Hi, this is former President Bill Clinton, and I love to play the saxophone. I mean, saxophone. All the girls say I got sax appeal. Join me every Wednesday at midnight for Blowing with Bill on WKMF, Cozy Corner Public Radio. Welcome back, all you misfits and miscreants and boogers from around the world. You are listening to The Late Night Fright. I am Dan. And I am Faith. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in and spending a little time with us here on our little show. Faith, we have a new segment. We do. Do you know what time it is? I'm pretty sure it is time to appease the lords of horror. Am I right? You are correct. It is time to appease the lords of horror. They demand sacrifice, and they demand blood. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Well, Faith, that was absolutely terrifying. So scary. That must be what it's like to have Satan on the show. So here we go. We are going to determine whether or not the Lords of Horror have been appeased, their thirst for blood quenched. We have with us our very best friend in the entire world. We have Bobby D'Amato. He is back with us. He is the host of Afterglow, the show that comes on after the late night fright, right? Right. You know, but if you're in Bobby's position, his point of view is, you know, he hosts, uh, you know, the late night fright is a show that comes on before Afterglow. <laughs> so, so, Bobby, you're here with us in the studio. It is good to see you. It's been a while. Hey, you guys. Yeah, it is really good to be here. I'm really glad to be contributing to this. I think it is sick, sadistic, and twisted, and I am so glad to be a part of it, okay? All right. So, this is what's going to happen. Bobby is going to tell you. Uh, everyone that was killed in the movie, he's going to tell you how it was done. Then he's going to tell you what their crime is. And Faith and I are going to vote on whether or not they are guilty. What do you think, Faith? That sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Bobby, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So first up, we got Barry Jackson and Claudette Hayes. Barry is stabbed through the gut with a knife. Claudette is attacked and the screen freezes. So we assume that she too is killed with a knife. Her crime, his crime, having sex. Barry says, hey, we weren't doing anything. We were just messing around. Oh, yeah, Barry. You were doing something. You were having sex in a horror movie, and you should have been watching them kids. Hey, guys, what's the verdict? Faith, what you got? Guilty. I'm going with guilty. I'm going with guilty. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's a definite blood sacrifice right there. What we got next, Bobby? So next up, we got Annie Phillips. She is the first victim in present time, which I find very funny because this movie does take place 40-something years ago. She jumps from a moving Jeep, but don't worry, that don't kill her. She is then stalked through the woods and then has her throat slit. That one gets her. Her crime being fresh-faced and adorable. She looks like she wandered in from the set of Three's Company. I think she's a little too chipper. 
a little too adorable. She says at one point she's always had a dream to work with kids. Guess what? You gotta die. What's you guys' verdict on this one? I'm going with guilty. 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 A little too much coffee. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's precious, but they demand... <laughs> she really doesn't like a Three's Company character. She does. Doesn't she, though? She does. Like, like a cousin of the cousin or something that like wandered in, you know? <laughs> yes. like Like Jack Tripper's third cousin once removed who needs a place to stay, <laughs> you know? So, Bobby, who's uh, who's up next? Yeah, all right. So we got Ned Rubenstein. He is killed off screen. His throat is slit, and he is left on the top bunk above the bed where Jack and Marcy are getting it on. Here's his crime, and his list is long. This is a rap sheet. Unsafe archery, improper use of CPR, making fun of Native Americans, and general douchebaggery. I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. This guy's guilty as sin. What do you guys think? I'm going guilty. I'm going too. guilty. Yeah, definitely guilty. I, I, yeah, this guy had it coming. Mm-hmm. He was the one I was most glad that went, and I just wish that we had gotten to see it. Mm-hmm. Me yeah. too. Yeah. All right. Who's up next, Bob? Yeah, we got Jack Burrell, played by Kevin Bacon. Uh, he is killed through an arrow that comes through his neck after he has sex with Marcy. His crime is having sex and attempting to light a joint. Those are two horror movie no-nos. You could also say he is guilty of being Kevin Bacon. What do you guys think? Guilty. Guilty. Definitely guilty. Mm -hmm. Definitely guilty. Uh, Let's see. Bob, who we got next? Well, we got Marcy Cunningham. She gets an axe through the face after having sex with Jack. Her crime is having sex. Are these kids ever going to learn, you guys? Seriously, are they ever going to learn? Also, she does a Catherine Hepburn impression. Well, kind of nice. Like, I was like, no, you got to go. You don't do Catherine Hepburn impressions in a horror movie. You got to go. What do you guys think? (laughs) Guilty. Oh, definitely guilty. I'm going guilty. Yes. Guilty. Who's next? Yeah, next we got uh, Brenda Jones. She is also killed off screen. I guess it was going for a little artistry, you know, like, hey, did she die? Didn't she die? Guess what? She died. She uh, was lured outside by Mrs. Voorhees. She is killed on an archery range and later thrown through a window. Her crime includes suggesting strip monopoly, inventing strip monopoly, and daring to read a book. What do you guys think? Guilty. Definitely guilty. Although, you know, I was on the fence with her because she invented Strip Monopoly, and I think that takes a certain amount of, uh, you know, ingenuity. I feel like this might be somebody Bobby might like. Oh, I've definitely played a lot of strip games in my time, but I've never played Monopoly because, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, you got too many pieces, and, like, you know, what if things get a little hot and heavy? Like, could you imagine, like, rolling over on that thimble or that car, (laughs) that top hat, and getting stuck somewhere you don't want it to get stuck? (sighs) So uh, moving on here, we got uh, Steve Christie. He is stabbed outside by the cramped Crystal Lake sign. His crime is being Steve. The denim short shorts, the attempted seducing Alice. Hey, you're very pretty. The new shirt, red bandana look, the mustache, daring to think he could reopen the camp after what happened there. He had to go and he had it coming. That's my own personal opinion. What do you guys think? Guilty, guilty, uh, Definitely, guilty. he's guilty. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm just sad that Mrs. Voorhees could only kill him once. Right. I mean, yeah. Uh, let's see. Coming in the home stretch here, we got uh, who we got next, Bob? 
Yeah, we got uh, Bill Brown, and he's played by uh, Harry Crosby III. And I don't know if you noticed, but that's uh, Bing Crosby's grandson. Yeah, ain't going to be a white Christmas for him. He is killed off screen with arrows and then plastered to the door of the generator room. His crime, wearing suspenders with jeans and no shirt. What do you guys think? Oh, very guilty. Guilty. Definitely guilty. That was not a becoming look even for Mm -mm. 1980. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Uh, I think we're home stretch here, Bob. Who we got? Yeah. Last up, we got Mrs. Voorhees, played by the great Betsy Palmer. Hey, let me tell you something. You know, I know she looks a little off-putting in this movie, but I've seen some pictures of her from when she was younger. And let me tell you something. She was Bay. All right. She was totally Bay. Uh, she is decapitated after trying to teach some kids a lesson. Her crime: loving too much. What do you think, Faith? Can we blame her? I gotta, I gotta go not guilty on that. That's what I'm, I'm saying. going not guilty on that. Right. You know, it's those pesky teenagers. Know. You know, don't we all hate them? Yeah, Baba, Bobby, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm going totally, totally not guilty on this one. Totally not guilty. And uh, Bobby, let me ask you. Uh, you were keeping tally here. Have the Lords of Horror, in fact, been appeased? They have been appeased. The Lords of Horror have been appeased. We are good to go for another week here in Cozy Corner. Listen, thanks you guys for letting me do this. This was a lot of fun. I'm going to be showing back up on the show a little more now. But uh, I got to go get ready for Afterglow. And I got to call a girl back, if you know what I mean. Hey, Faith, you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Hey, if you play Strip Monopoly, watch out for that thimble, huh, Faith? (laughs) You too. (laughs) All right, I'll see you guys later. Faith, that was fun. A lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. We need to start doing that every episode. I know. I think we are. So as we do here on the Late Night Fright, we always end with our favorites. Uh, Faith, do you have a list? I do. Do you have a list? I also have a list. Why don't you go first? Oh, okay. Um, I think, well, I was going to agree with you on one thing, <laughs> but I don't want to get into it quite yet. If you're not going to get into it. I'll go first. Okay. Uh, Crazy Ralph, played by Walt Gorney. He looks like he just wandered in from Mayberry on a three-day bender. (laughs) You're all doomed. Uh, I like how he waits in the pantry very patiently, I might add. Very patiently in that pantry. My my note with that is, like, why is he in the pantry? (laughs) Yes, of all the places to hide, why? why Patiently, patiently in the pantry. And uh, my note here is it makes me wonder what would have happened if no one had come into the pantry. Would he have just stayed there? (laughs) (laughs) They just, they hear, at night they hear, they hear, let me out. You're doomed. Let me out. I just don't get the pantry. uh, Yeah. My next one, I like Mrs. Voorhees swinging the machete and then taking a frying pan to the face. (laughs) She really sells it, too. Do you have any more? I do. My absolute favorite moment of the film was the reflection in the water during the final fight when Alice sees Mrs. Voorhees coming up behind her. I thought it was a great moment, and I don't know why I liked it so much. It just I, I, it. I thought it was a very nice film, mm-hmm. filmic, cinematic moment. And the last thing, I like the callback, even though this isn't really this movie. I like the callback that Freddy versus Jason makes to this. Uh, Freddy gets decapitated in the same manner as Mrs. Voorhees does in this film. And that was something that was really interesting to me, again, doing the rewatch of this, where that had never really struck me before. And I went, oh, it's very nice attention 
to the history of these two franchises. So I thought that was great. That's it for my favorites. Okay. Um, I'm with you on Ralph. I think he's so odd. <laughs> the pantry cracks me up. Also, the way he runs off after he leaves. <laughs> yes. There's like, something very just just kid creepy. Like I'd like more Ralph. I'd like, I would have liked a movie with I th- I think Ralph, a lot of him in it. You know, when we did uh, the episode on the remake of this, the 2009 remake, mm-hmm. and go ahead and tell them. Yeah, it, it's available wherever podcasts are, can be found. That's right. We we both hated that movie. <laughs> really hated that movie. If you like that movie, don't listen to it. Um, but, uh, no, we made a note that there was a scene in there where a woman, you get the idea that the people in this town were very aware of Jason, and there was an unspoken peace with mm-hmm. Jason. Like, they didn't go into the woods, and he didn't bother them. And we we both said well, we'd like to see that movie that that's the movie that yes. we would we would like to see unfortunately we didn't get that movie with the 2009 remake but that when you said i'd like to see more ralph i'm going yeah in that movie that we both wanted to see <laughs> we both with wanted two, we both wanted 2009 to be yeah we want yeah maybe we should make a movie like that <laughs> oh i'm seriously writing a spec script uh, for a jason movie i'm not kidding about that Details to be forthcoming. Copyright 2019, The Late Night Fright, and whoever owns the rights to the character of Jason Voorhees. <laughs> uh, another thing I like is the whole look and feel of this movie. Um, you know, I know it's an 80s film and stuff, and it looks like one. I just, I don't know. I like it. Um, I think I had texted you at a part that made me laugh. Jack says it's getting cold in here, so he puts on a tank top. I would I would like for you to set this up correctly. I would like you to say that Jack, played by Kevin, Kevin Bacon, Bacon. Excuse me. He's like, it's getting cold in here. So he grabs his tank top. And I actually laughed out loud. I'm like, right. Okay. There's I'm, an endearing, charming quality to this film. It's yeah. And it is unintentionally funny at times. And the movie is not trying to be serious. So it just becomes completely endearing. And I just had such a good time watching I, it. Uh, I also liked when Kevin Bacon was killed. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I just liked that moment. Like, you didn't even see it coming. That was my favorite kill in, the, in the movie was the arrow through the thing. Great special effect, I too. Um, and then I liked when, was it Brenda? I think she was in the bathroom. You kind of see the hand creep behind yeah. the curtain. Oh, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. I like that. That's, a, that's all I got. Yeah. Uh, so two final questions here. What was Steve Christie doing for that whole time he was gone? Because he leaves, and then the next time you say, I'm going into town to do some things. And then the next time you see him, at that point, he's not wearing a shirt. He's wearing his little red bandana and his short jean shorts, and his little mustache and curly hair, flirting with uh, Alice Hardy. And uh, I got some things that you got you to get this place cleaned up. And he goes off, and people start dying. The next thing, like 45 minutes later, you see him in a diner. Yeah. I don't think he's bought any supplies that I can see. <laughs> so my question to you is, what was he doing for that time? I really have no idea. What do you think he was doing? I, I'm spitballing here. I really am, because I didn't write anything down. Like uh, I think it was like, yeah, I'm going to get a trim and not my mustache, if you know what I mean. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> like he found some strange massage parlor maybe, in maybe Crystal Lake. A- Weird suspicion, and he left or something. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Uh, my final question on this film Did this movie deserve the shit sandwich the critics threw at it when it came out? I don't think so. I don't think it does. I think it's it a did good either. Movie. I, I think, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think if you watch this, 
a few times with the proper mentality of yeah. what this is. And we talk about this on the show sometimes. This movie knows exactly what it is. It's trying to deliver scares. He would have cast great actors if he was trying to make a really big, high art piece. He said he was looking for people that look good, could say the words. Okay, he knew what movie he was making. He made that movie. Exactly. And it stood the test of time. Again, is it a great movie? No. At times, I don't even think it's a very good movie, but it's so much fun. <laughs> it and, really is. And it really is a classic in the slasher canon. I think it sets the tone for a lot of things that come after it. Not only does it set the tone for things that are copying and being similar, but then something like A Nightmare on Elm Street that we talked about where it goes against some of those types. So I think this movie is just fine. I think it's a whole lot of fun. I enjoyed watching this movie. And that, at the end of the day, is really what this is about, right? Yeah, 90 exactly. minutes that I don't feel I wasted. You wasted, yeah. And I actually got some wonderful ideas watching the movie, just uh, talking as a, as, a, as a writer myself, you know, and... Uh, being involved in, in putting together uh, certain visual things with our, our friend Kay that we've talked about. Just the way that he put together things so simply, it's great. Mm-hmm. I think it was really well done. And that's what you said. If, if, you, if you watch this movie going in, knowing how he intended it, he hit the nail on the head. You know what I mean? That's how you have to watch this. Right. You can't think of it as anything more than what it was supposed to be. Right. It strikes, it, it does what we talk about on this show. You know, if a movie can uh, find its tone and strike that tone and keep that tone for the entire movie, it does that. Yeah. It does that better than a lot of big budget movies. You know, it's a fine movie. I mm-hmm. highly recommend this movie to anyone uh, who's never seen it, too. You know, might, yeah. like, I've never seen it. Watch it. It's fun. It's just a lot of fun. It's not going to change your life. You're going to have yeah. a good time. <laughs> You're going to get some laughs that are intended and unintended. And the. Lords of Horror will be appeased. You will appease them by watching this movie, and we will make it another day. So, (laughs) Well, Faith, we're about to wrap it up, but you know what we have to do, right? We have to go back out to Gordon Cole, FBI director here in Cozy Corner. He is at the home office there and down there at the FBI office in Cozy Corner. Gordon, do you have that epic poem for us? Hello, Dan and Faith. I do not have an epic poem. I was too busy eating my cherry pie and drinking my coffee. But I do have a haiku about this truly epic film. Here it goes. Blood and a full moon. Mrs. Voorhees is crazy. But then aren't we all? Have a great night, kids. Well, Faith, there you have it. You know, we are but a humble horror podcast, but every now and then we get to leave on a philosophical note. Yep. Aren't we all? Yes. That's a that's the <laughs> question, isn't it? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? I think that's the beauty of the haiku and the genius of Gordon Cole, FBI director. You know, the 575 structure, you know, you can't, you, 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 no fat there. Nope. You know, very lean. I love a good haiku. I love a good haiku, too. And he's the ma- he's a master of the form, Gordon Cole is. And Gordon Cole is going to be visiting the show quite a bit in the uh, upcoming future. The upcoming future. The future is always upcoming, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It is. But, you know, every now and then we get to leave on a, on a very high note like that. And I feel good about it. You know, the Lords of Horror have been appeased. I feel like we had some laughs. We got to share some stories. You know, it's 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 been a good night here. Very good. Cozy night. Corner. So, well, as we said, you all know this. We are available wherever podcasts are found. We are on the interweb. That bumper is there at the beginning of the show. You know where to find us. We are at the Late Night Fright Podcast on Instagram. LateNightFright.com. And Faith is available at I'm a Normal Alien. Please feel free to drop us a line. And thank you again for spending a little time with our little show. Faith, we had another great month on this show. We 
had another record month of downloads. We are in so many countries. We're being heard around the world. And it's amazing and and having fun and we're we're back doing the show. I know. It's so exciting. It's very exciting. So I am Dan. And I am Faith. And as always, we want you to keep, keep your, your monster, monster on a leash. leash. We will see you on the other side. This is your president, Donald Trump. And when I'm up at three o'clock in the morning, squeezing out a sideways turd on my solid gold toilet in the White House, I'm doing one of two things. I'm either tweeting or I'm playing with this great app called GarageBand. Listen to these beats. They're awesome, fantastic, they're terrific. You're gonna love it. Those beats are so funky because they're American beats. My beats are the greatest. They're terrific, fantastic. You're gonna love them. Melania dances to them every morning when I'm making them, squeezing out that sideways turd on the gold toilet in the White House. Join me for Donald's Garage Band, only on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio, right here in America. <laughs>